Hello everybody, Julian Charles here of themindrenewed.com, coming to you as usual from the depths of the Lancashire countryside here in the UK. And today I'm delighted to welcome to the programme the author John Leake. John Leake studied history and philosophy with Sir Roger Scruton at Boston University. After moving to Austria on a graduate scholarship, he remained in Vienna for over a decade, working as a freelance writer and translator. His first book, Entering Hades, The Double Life of a Serial Killer, was a New York Times Sunday book review editor's choice and a Men's Vogue Best Book of 2007, and the inspiration for The Infernal Comedy, starring John Malkovich. Now, there's a lot more that I could say about our guest today, but I'll leave that just for now. Uh, John Leake, thank you ever so much indeed for agreeing to speak with us on The Mind Renewed. Thanks for having me, Julian. Uh, it's wonderful to be speaking with you. Um, I'm very grateful to you for coming on, because what we're going to be doing today is we're going to be discussing an interview that you conducted several weeks ago with the eminent US physician and academic Dr. Peter McCullough. Now, that's a name I suspect will be known to a large number of TMR listeners. And that quite quickly went viral, and rightly so, I think, because it's a very important interview, in my view. Um, and I'm going to be playing that interview in full in the next podcast. So that will be TMR number 265, this being TMR 264, uh, with John's kind permission, so that people can hear it if they've not heard it already. But for now, perhaps you could tell us a bit more about yourself, John, and why you decided to conduct this interview with Dr. McCullough. Sure. I had initially thought I would be an academic. I was interested in history and philosophy. When I was living in Vienna, I sort of became disillusioned with academia, and I started thinking about trying my hand at just writing commercially interesting books. And um, I sort of fell into true crime. I was fascinated by the city of Vienna, and there was a film that would play in a cinema around the corner from my apartment called The Third Man, um, starring Orson Welles and, and Joseph Cotton. Interestingly enough, the screenplay was written by Graham Greene. It was about a, a very villainous guy leading a double life in Vienna. And so I was sort of inspired by that. I stumbled across a true crime story. And so I fell into becoming a true crime author. And I found I had a certain knack for research and obtaining records. And I think the thing that I discovered in writing my two true crime books is that um, media representations, newspapers, television, are oftentimes either done in such haste or they're done under the influence of something like groupthink in the editorial room that um, the truth of the matter is oftentimes not really reported. If you just turn on the television or read the newspaper, you're oftentimes not getting a very accurate story of what's going on. I also happened to have worked as a translator, and there was a pathologist at the Vienna Institute of Forensic Medicine who asked me to translate some of her papers, which she wanted to submit to English-language medical journals so I developed a kind of facility for reading medical literature. So when this pandemic, or so-called pandemic, when the first reports came out, particularly reports from Italy at the beginning of 2020, I just remember thinking, you know, a lot of what's being represented here in the media just doesn't really add up to me. Hmm. The Italian Institute of 
superior health gave a um, press conference, I think on March the 16th in Rome. And there were some doctors who had performed autopsies of several patients to whom the cause of death was attributed as COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2. And I remember the doctor reporting his findings, and he was saying the median age is 82, an average of three underlying chronic health conditions. And I remember thinking, well, that sounds like someone at the end of life. I mean, he actually exceeded life expectancy and um, was sort of already knocking on heaven's door when SARS showed up in the greater Milan area. So that was my first sort of concern that something very strange is afoot here. And so for the last 18 months, I'd say, I've just been reading all of the literature I could find on this. And um, the name Dr. Peter McCullough kept jumping out. Mm-hmm. And coincidentally, he is a physician and professor of medicine in Dallas, Texas, where I'm currently living. Oh, I see. So um, mm. then I began to think I'd really like to interview him and have him walk me through each subsequent phase of this, how this mm. saga has unfolded. So that's what I did. Yeah. And he's a very eminent professor of medicine, isn't he? I, is it right that he has over a thousand publications to his name? He's an editor of a couple of journals, he's yes. widely consulted. Yes, he's a professor of internal medicine and cardiology. His um, focus of research has been the interface between the heart and the kidneys, how the heart and the kidneys communicate with each other hormonally. And um, by virtue of studying this, he's become extremely well-versed in all of the literature of chronic disease and pharmacological treatments of chronic disease. So the thing that just mystified him when they start receiving the memo, SARS-CoV-2 is untreatable. The, 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 The memo that's being passed down from the hospital administration is there's absolutely nothing that can be done to treat patients he, he thinks, well, that just can't be true. I mean, that, that is such a, a radical departure from the practice of medicine where, where we reach into the pharmacopoeia, into the medicine chest, and we start looking for ways to help people. We don't just surrender from the outset. So, yes, um, a, a guy of tremendous scholarship and research yeah. and himself a treating physician. He sees people every day. Mm-hmm. So how did the interview actually come about? Did you simply just email him or did you, I don't know, did you bump into him in the street or how did it actually happen? He was at Baylor Scott White. He he was. Um, the hospital administrators were apparently unhappy with what he was saying. Hmm. You know, our First Amendment protecting free speech in this country is <laughs> apparently become provisional. Um The hospital administrators didn't like what he was saying, so they told him, um, we're severing your contract with Baylor Scott White. So he has taken his patients into private practice. But um, Hmm. I just called his secretary and said, would you give me Dr. McCullough's email address? She did, and I just introduced myself. I find it's useful that I've had a couple of books published. That seems to Mm. be useful in 
getting people to at least respond. Um, but he very trusting. I mean, he he feels very strongly that what he is perceiving in the world right now is very wrong. And anyone who who will listen, he's delighted to speak. So I I found it rather easy to get the interview. And incidentally, um, documentary filmmaker with whom I'm working, his studio happens to be about a hundred meters from Dr. McCullough's office. So it just fell in place. It's a particularly wonderful interview, which is why I contacted you. And of course, in its original form, it is a video. And I think it's very effective as a video, particularly because of the way you, you shot it. So many interviews can just be two talking heads. But in this case, you had a light concentrated just upon him, um, rather in a documentary style. And uh, you had your questions as silent slides, which I think also very much adds to the overall effect. But of course, that's going to present something of an issue when I come to play the audio without that visual element. Uh, so you've You've kindly said that I can voice those over. I shall, I shall just be your voice for the sake of the audio when it comes to the next podcast. But, um, yeah, you decided to do it that way. Um, I think that was a very good decision. Well, I have to credit my partner with whom I'm working on this documentary. He, he is a wonderful documentary filmmaker. His name is Justin Malone. He just has a masterful understanding of how if you have an interesting guy who has something to say, the interviewer should get his ego and his presence out of it and get the camera mm. focused on the subject yes. almost in the way that, you know, the old master painters, Velasquez or Titian, you know, yes. get the focus on the character of the man or the woman who's speaking and hold that hard focus. And that sort of chiaroscuro lighting with the black background, I think, really brings out Dr. McCullough's character. Yes, absolutely. So all I can say is people should go and watch the original video. I'll put a link to your Vimeo channel so they can do that. Of course, paradoxically, I shall uh, break that effect by speaking your words, but there's nothing else we can do about this. So I, I need to give people an idea who have not actually witnessed this interview, why this interview is extraordinary, what it's about, which I say I I think you conducted extremely well because you, you managed to draw a great deal from him. I've heard him interviewed before, but your interview revealed a lot more about his experience and his thinking and indeed his personality. Anyway, in this interview, Dr. McCullough tells his own story of pursuing early COVID-19 treatment for the sake of patients. And people listening to this show will be familiar with that concept. We've spoken to Dr. Paul Marek, uh, Dr. Mobin Syed. Um, and Dr. McCullough also says that he uniquely published in that area early on in the so-called pandemic. He also describes the resistance by powerful institutions to what he and others like him were doing. And um, he shares his very deep concerns about COVID-19 vaccine safety in the context of continuing moves to push vaccination in a mandatory direction or a sort of quasi-mandatory direction. So there's a lot in there, a very great deal to ponder in there. And he comes across as so concerned and as so heroic, um, very striking, very informative and eye-opening interview in many ways. And of course, I hugely encourage everyone to listen to that in the next podcast. Um, you said to me in an email that you would like to say a few words about how you, as an investigative author who has been following all this for the last year or so, how you view Dr. McCullough's words in the context of this so-called pandemic. So how do you view his words? Well, I think it was in the spring of last year, I, without 
having ever met or at that point even heard of Dr. McCullough, I began to think this just can't be true that there's nothing that can be done but to surrender to this virus. All we can do is everyone, every man, woman and child must just stay at home until a vaccine is developed. And I remember thinking, well, it could take years to develop a vaccine. Mm. They may never develop a safe and effective vaccine. This just didn't make sense to me. Mm. Um, The other irony is that I have a place in Vienna, but I got stranded in Dallas. I was home visiting my mother, got stuck in Dallas. So I was living with my mother. And like a lot of ladies of her generation, she actually watches the evening news. (laughs) And one of the most frequently advertised things on the evening news in the United States are pharmaceuticals. You know, ask your doctor about whatever side effects could include blurred vision, cardiac arrest, you know, pulmonary embolisms, blah, blah, blah. So why is it, I remember thinking, when we're constantly being barraged with pharmaceutical treatments for for everything, why is it that some of these medications that have been FDA approved, things like hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin that have been on the market for decades for treating a variety of conditions, why are we being told we are forbidden from trying these medications in order to blunt the symptoms of COVID and to keep us out of hospital? Mm. My mother is an extremely social woman. And she was saying, I'm not going to stay at home. I'm going to go out and see my friends. I'm going to play cards and go out to dinner when Dallas began to reopen. This is nonsense. So I said, well, mom, we should probably organize a prescription of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin in the event that you get ill. We have it ready to go. So she sent an email to her internist at the University of Texas Southwestern, a major medical center in Dallas, saying, you know, in the event that I should fall ill with COVID, I would like a prescription of hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. And her internist wrote back, no, I can't fill that request. (laughs) My mother is 73 years old and has essential hypertension, high blood pressure. So my mom writes back, so what do I do if I get ill? Mm-hmm. And her doctor says, well, stay at home, you know, take aspirin. And should you fall gravely ill, of course, we would give you supportive care in a hospital. And I, I said, that's just that's just nonsense. I mean, I've been reading literature on hydroxychloroquine. They were first talking about this as being efficacious back with SARS-CoV-1. There are FDA researchers who have written papers about how this could be very useful. This is nonsense. Well, my mom did fall ill with COVID. Mm -hmm. She developed a severe sinus infection and tested positive. So at this point, it became this immensely stressful thing. Like, what do I do? So I went around Dallas beating the bushes, pulling strings, finally found a doctor who would prescribe it, found a pharmacy that would dispense it. A lot of pharmacies wouldn't fill the prescription, Mm -hmm. get the medicine, give my mom her first dose on a Tuesday. She doesn't look like she's doing so well. It looks like the infection is sort of moving into her upper respiratory tract. Um, The next morning she wakes up, takes her second dose at breakfast. That evening, 
She takes her third dose with dinner. I go for an evening walk. When I come home from my evening walk, I peek into her bedroom to check on her. She's watching some British detective series on Netflix <laughs> and is laughing. Her color has returned. Um, the deep circles under her eyes. I mean, just she just you've probably seen this with someone who has a bacterial infection and who takes antibiotics and suddenly the antibiotics just kick in and the person starts to feel better. Well, there's a case in point, isn't it? This is something that Dr. McCullough says. What other infection do we treat in the same way? Just wait until somebody gets really, really sick. You know, there are lots where indeed you, you get in there early and you treat it to prevent that from happening. Precisely. Hmm. Yes. So she staged a remarkable recovery. Um, really the next day she was considerably better. And then within a few days she was just completely restored to her full health. And hmm. And then, of course, the, the feedback you get is, well, that's just anecdotal. Yeah, um, yes. That's just one example. Well, here in Dallas, a lot of people began to realize hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin, they do work. And so it was so sort of an underground you know, network of people who were helping each other to get this stuff. And, and you know, it's anecdotal, but every everybody <laughs> yes. is having the same positive experience. Um, so Indeed, when you get enough anecdotes together, it has a certain force to it, doesn't it? <laughs> well, well, it does. And then bear in mind that, um, you know, what we're being told is that a 73-year-old hypertensive lady, you know, has a fairly mm. high percentage chance of landing in hospital. I mean, we were hearing things in the media, you know, don't expose your grandmother, you know, she could die. Well, if that's what you're telling me, that there's a alarming probability that she could land in hospital and die, why are you then telling me that under no circumstances could she try a small dose of hydroxychloroquine for five days on the wildly improbable possibility that she might develop a heart arrhythmia? It's absurd. Yes. I mean, my my brother's secretary has lupus. Hmm. It's a sort of autoimmune condition. She's been taking hydroxychloroquine to manage it for 15 years hmm. and has never had a problem. Um, I used to hang out in Africa a lot. I took hydroxychloroquine for malaria prophylaxis. No one even thinks twice about writing a script of this stuff. When it's rheumatoid arthritis, lupus, mm. malaria, yeah. but suddenly with COVID, yeah. oh no, it's dangerous. You can't <laughs> take that. That was sort of my my baptism, you know, in fire with this madness. Yes, and then I, I shortly thereafter started seeing references to um, Dr. M Peter McCullough, who's a guy who studied medicine, has taught medicine, treats patients. And what he was saying precisely corresponded to my experience. Right. Yeah. So um, my personal experience intersected with his authoritative point of view, and that's how all of this came together. Yeah. Well, my baptism of fire with it, I think, was the, the whole Surgisphere fraud which the good doctor mentions in your interview. And, uh, you know, when that happened last year, I became quickly aware this was extremely fishy. There were so many doctors responding to that paper in The Lancet saying, you know, there's something very wrong with this. Why on earth have they published this? Um, it's obviously dodgy. And I thought, you know, for this to happen, for an obviously 
flawed paper to get published in such an eminent journal, there's clearly something very suspicious going on. And of course, when Ivermectin came along, I thought, well, you know, here's a hypothesis with a predictive power. Uh, something similar is going to happen to Ivermectin too, as indeed you know, many people thought. And uh, lo and behold, that turned out to be the case. So, uh, you know, why do, why do you think this has been happening? Okay, I'm asking you to speculate to some extent here, but do you have any views on why this is happening? Why early treatment is being suppressed? Well, I, th- I think that um, for my second book, I-, I actually experienced something like this on a small scale. A young man disappeared in the Tyrolean Alps. What I discovered after two years of researching it is that he died a violent death as a result of negligence. Negligence on the part of a guy who then realized, oh my goodness, I, I screwed up. I killed this guy. I'm going to lose my job. I'm going to you know, possibly spend time in prison for negligent homicide, maybe only a year or so, but still. So the body was concealed. And then this set in motion a, a sort of chain reaction of various parties agreeing to play along with concealment. Mm. It's not that they were actively concealing, but turning a blind eye. So what I learned is that if you have an agenda, and in this case, we can only speculate about what exactly the agenda is, I think the most plausible hypothesis is that from the very beginning, the thought was, this is our big chance to deploy mass mandatory vaccination. There's been a this perception that the panacea for respiratory illnesses is vaccination. And the more people that we can vaccinate, you know, the better. So a kind of almost a religious fetish with vaccinations. Obviously, one of one of the great spokesmen for vaccination, Bill Gates, um, he does have almost a monomaniacal focus on vaccines. Um, <laughs> I, I heard a guy say, um, you know, it's funny that Windows operating system had so much trouble with viruses. Um, you know, how do you combat computer viruses? And the word virus used um, as, as metaphorically for, you know, electronic contamination of the operating system. So he seems to be obsessed with this. And mm. I think a lot of people have become obsessed with vaccines. So it's a preference for vaccines over therapeutic treatment. I, I think that's a good starting point. But in terms of, you know, how do you explain the mechanics of how an agenda can spread so far and wide? I don't oh, sure, sure. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, it, it can be immediately dismissed as being oh, a massive conspiracy involving everybody in health and everybody under the sun. And yes, that would be an extravagant and unreasonable conspiracy theory. But if you start to think in more sociological terms about the pressures upon people and how people can comply and keep quiet and protect their careers and all that sort of thing, I can see how such a thing could happen involving relatively few conspirators. Um, That's right. This is the point I, you know, conspiracy theory has become a pejorative Mm. term in order to eliminate any kind of questioning or opposition. You just label someone who's trying to figure out what's going on, the conspiracy theorists, that they're sort of summarily dismissed from the conversation. Absolutely. And when we talk about conspiracies, I, I think you have to understand that a lot of people who find themselves swept up into an agenda like this, 
they don't necessarily know the role that they're playing. Hmm. They just receive an email from a hospital administrator saying this is the policy. Don't prescribe hydroxychloroquine. If you do, you could face disciplinary action from the medical board. Hmm. Well, so that's enough. You, at that point, you don't need to know anymore. Absolutely. I mean, you're not participating in the discussion. You're just being told what to do. And hmm. I think hmm. human society is very hierarchical and it's hmm. very top sure. down in, it, in its directives. And becoming more so. And when I hear people saying that the United Nations should have more power, health organizations should have more power. We need to have a more globalized response in the future. I'm thinking, God forbid, you know, we don't want to have more hierarchy and more top-down inflexibility with doctors' hands tied at the patient level. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Just coming back to this whole business about speculating about causes for all this and that sort of thing, I do note that Dr. McCullough quotes, I think, a journalist as saying, the vaccine is not about the virus. The virus is about the vaccine which is quite an astonishing statement. Have you any interpretation of what he means with that? Well, it just seems like for a long time now, the big pharmaceutical companies have been really charmed by this idea that we can actually take genetic material as a sort of code in, in the way a computer programmer programs a computer, and we can inject this RNA code that will actually program the human body to generate a specific piece of the pathogen, and thereby we program the human immune system. I think it's been a major aspiration, not only for um, how to treat a respiratory viral infection, but possibly a whole frontier of, applica of you know, genetic applications in terms of modifying, you know, how the human body responds to stimuli. And um, so it kind of looks like, I mean, it's sort of a hypothesis. Let's call it a starting point for investigation. Hmm. You know, it kind of looks like these guys are really revved up about COVID-19 because it provides them with an opportunity to deploy hmm. messenger RNA technology all at once, you know, within just a few months. Yep on a truly global scale. So this is, as you say, opportunity. So this is the opportunism interpretation, which yeah. I think has got a lot going for it. But it's even broader than that, isn't it, to give weight to what you're saying, that there's opportunism as far as tech corporations are concerned and governments are concerned, because we have this sort of biosecurity state mentality crashing in on top of this as well. With, oh, you know, we have these vaccine passes linked to your, your mobile phone, and, oh, and perhaps we can have a cashless society and all these sorts of things. There are huge forces in play here that at the very least, are seeing this as an opportunity and who might therefore be motivated to prolong this pandemic for all kinds of control reasons and power reasons and monetary reasons. You know, I, I studied political philosophy and I studied political philosophy with a conservative British philosopher, Roger Scruton. Mm. And, you know, he would always go out of his way to point out that the British Constitution is something that evolved over a period of centuries. You know, the English common law, I mean, you get up to the mid-18th century, um, Blackstone's commentaries on the English law. I mean, all of this is something very, very special. If you study just anthropology, humans are really not inclined to the developments that happened in England, say, between the Magna Carta and Blackstone's commentaries in the mid-18th century. 
that the state must be limited. The power of the state must be subjected to law in the same way that everybody else. Hmm. That's actually quite a special development that happened in England. And those ideas were then spread to the New World, to what then became the United States. The American Constitution really rests on, on the bedrock of English common law. And these technocrats that have Absolutely. acquired so much wealth mm. and so much power in our, in our digital age, they don't understand that. Mm. They think, I would say, in, in a more kind of conventional anthropological way, you know, we know we're the authorities, we're the smart guys, yeah. um, we know what is best for society. So the British Constitution and, and the U.S. written Constitution, if they are going to be impaired by our directives, then, then so be it. That's the problem that I see in this, because what people have understood, I think, going back to Aristotle, is that you know, there's always emergencies. You know, human beings are frail, we're mortal. There's always some reason why a dictator can rise to power, invoke emergency power, and say, okay, you know, you need to vest all of your obedience and allegiance in me because I'm going to protect you mm. from this menace. Yeah. That has happened throughout history. It will always happen. But our constitutional form of government guards against that. And what I am concerned about is, is that this is just being thrown out under the, the miasma of fear. Yes. We're yes. just throwing out our, our constitutional traditions. Absolutely, because to quote a phrase, we need to be eternally vigilant, don't we? It's all very well to have either a written or, or in our case, an unwritten constitution. But if you're not vigilant about that, it can just disappear under your nose, especially if you're put to sleep, again, to use another phrase, um, through fear. Yes. It can just go. And so rapidly. Mm. I mean, I remember thinking um, in Dallas, our, our local county judge invoked emergency authority by this sort of obscure, poorly written statute in, in the state of Texas. And I thought, this was inconceivable 30 days ago. Mm, yes. I mean, the Incredible. swiftness whereby these protections that, that we've grown accustomed to and taken for granted can just be taken away under the, under the pretense of, of you need to be protected. Um, mm. Within 30 days, this happened. So I think that we're just so inclined, again, in the grip of fear mm. to surrender our protections because we're terrified. Yeah. Well, that word fear comes out a great deal in this interview with Dr. McCullough. He points to that as a kind of lever, really, that's being used against people, used against medics and against the population. And I don't know exactly what's in his mind, but he clearly does suspect some serious foul play behind the scenes. I know that he does mention a colleague of his, Dr. Peter Bregin, who is writing a book called COVID-19 and the Global Predators with the subtitle, We Are the Prey, and for which uh, he has written an introduction. So I know he's thinking somewhat along those lines. Anyway, there's a lot in this interview that is informative and intriguing as well and, and deeply concerning. So perhaps we now should leave it there and uh, invite listeners to shift over to the, the next podcast, TMR 265, to listen to the interview itself. And thanks once again for sharing it with us. 
Well, thank you. If I may just add one thing. Mm. Um, sure. The interview lasted about four hours, and, and there was oh. <laughs> detailed questioning and back and forth and uh, refining and qualifying. Yeah. The the slides that you're going to read, I, I think they might even sound a little bit stilted. It, it was our mm. attempt to condense the most salient points. Um, well, no, no, that's, so- no, that's no bad thing, actually. So if I come across as slightly stilted, that will fit with your original idea, won't it? It'll take the emphasis off me and put it back on to Peter McCullough. Because that's one of the things I thought, oh dear, if I'm going to perform, it's going to, going to take away from his words. But if I'm a little stilted and unnatural, maybe that'll work better. Yes. <laughs> and I'm glad it's not going to be four hours long because I think people wouldn't listen to that. But it's going to be long enough, isn't it? Is it about an hour and 40, something like that? An hour and 45 minutes. So that that's right. just to say um, the slides are just in a, a, an attempt to condense a broader constellation of questioning and to just keep points. Yeah. Well, I will say it's probably one of the shortest one hour, 45 minutes I've ever listened to. Because <laughs> I think it was such a good interview. Thank you. Thanks, Julian. This was great. Indeed. Stay in touch and uh, yeah. be well. I'll, I'll talk to you later. Okay. And you. Thanks again. Goodbye. Okay, and as I said towards the end of that conversation, if you would like to hear John Leake's interview with Dr. Peter McCullough, which I very much recommend you do, it truly is a must listen. I know people are always saying that, oh, this one is a must listen, it's a must listen. No, but this one really is. And coming from me, who hardly ever says that, must surely lend it a little extra weight. This is a must listen. If you want to hear that, then just shift over however you do with your podcast listening device of choice over to TMR number 265, which I'm calling The Astonishing Words of Dr. Peter A. McCullough. And there you will indeed hear his words, plus my my rather stilted articulation of John's condensed questions. So uh, my thanks once again to John Leake for joining us today and for kindly allowing TMR to host this special interview. Show notes for this program can be found at The Mind Renewed, themindrenewed.com, podcast music by Anthony Rajakoff, attribution on commercial share alike 4.0 international you have been listening to me julian charles and my guest john leake and i very much look forward to speaking to you again in the near future